0: Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're doing something different. This is our man behind the mic episode where I'll be interviewed by my friend Joe Kaiser. Joe's a director at Mercado Partners, a private equity firm where he leads the firm's investment efforts in the Midwest as well as its performance team. A huge thank you goes out to Joe for coming up with this idea and giving us his time and thoughtful questions. He was kind enough to switch seats and put me in the hot seat for this interview. For part one, we're going to dive into why we started Fast Frontiers, my experience and journey as a CEO, operator, fund of funds, manager, and VC investor, and we'll discuss the origin and thesis for refinery ventures. Please enjoy part one of my man behind the mic conversation with Joe Kaiser.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Kaiser, and I'm thrilled today to have the opportunity to share with you a man-behind-the-mic version of Fast Frontiers with uh, Tim Schiegel, the founder of both Fast Frontiers and Refinery Ventures. Tim, how are you today?
0: I am excellent.
1: Well, I have obviously followed uh, every season so far. I've learned a ton uh, from all of your guests and from just talking to you, and and so I'm thrilled to offer the audience an opportunity to hear your insights into investing and and how to build uh, companies from the earliest stages uh, through exit. So, uh, with that, though, I thought we could start with why why did you start Fast Frontiers?
0: Excellent question. I always start with the why. Uh, thanks, also Jeff, for doing this and for suggesting the idea. I've been asking the question which questions which has been the uh best part and easiest part of a podcast cuz uh, I just have really smart guests on and they do all the work and that's the secret <laughs> to podcasting. Uh so putting me on the spot here but I really appreciate you uh coming and doing this. So Fast Frontiers, you know, the tagline is it's about how innovation's accelerating in unexpected places. And I really didn't see much content in that that sort of niche uh obviously i'm coming at it from a venture and tech entrepreneurship background but there were kind of several vectors right we talk a lot about innovation generally uh, you know as, as as investors obviously our lifeblood is innovation i've done a lot with working with big companies who are very focused on innovation so innovation is a very popular topic innovation can happen in a lot of different places and places can be geographic and they can be metaphorical Right, so they can be within healthcare, within you know various industries. They could be in places like the Midwest or in Cincinnati, which is really kind of how it started, right? But it's it seems to be a broader topic than just the geography, and there are some similarities. So we can have interesting folks on, uh, from entrepreneurs to investors to researchers, academics, community builders. So it really gives us a lot of space to to sort of play. And you know, if you're um, it dawned on me. I've done a lot of work. I've, I've had a place or worked in Silicon Valley, you know, off and on for 30 years. And there's just such a density and concentration of all those people, mixing it up every day. Right? You bump into them at Starbucks. You see them at work, everywhere. And I would go back to Cincinnati, and you know, I, I I wouldn't walk into a Starbucks and run into somebody from Google by chance, right? Like I went out there. And so, the the challenge we have geographically, like in the Midwest, is We don't have that density, right? And so it finally, uh, actually, one of our, another one of our advisors kind of suggested that I do this because they're like, hey, you you know, a lot of interesting people, you know, I'm not on, I'm not heavily on social media, uh, you know, pushing that sort of thing. But it's like, hey, when I'm having interesting conversations with interesting people, why not share them with others? And why not share some of the things that I've learned and that I continue to learn with others in places? that are unexpected that, that aren't necessarily Silicon Valley and Boston, New York corridor. So I know it's a long answer, but you know, a lot of those things were kind of bumping around in my head that kind of, that, that finally led me to creating the podcast. And ultimately the podcast is here to serve the entrepreneur to hopefully help the entrepreneurs learn something or feel more confident um, in their journey or be inspired by others.
1: Yeah, it's 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 compelling because it, it serves the virtual purpose of the coffee shop conversation, I think, uh, that you were just talking about uh, in the Bay Area. But, Tim, one of the things that I've always found fascinating uh, about our conversations, you know, I, I, I think I, I think it's important for an investor to have sat at multiple seats around the table. But you redefine what sitting around multiple seats around the table means uh, just for the audience uh, benefit. Can you describe, like, you've been an operator in, in multiple geographies, you've been a multiple type of investor, like, can you give the audience just a, your, your both operating and investing background?
0: Sure. Yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's either unique or unfocused, you know, whatever you want, <laughs> you want to label it. <laughs> I think of myself, first and foremost, as a tech entrepreneur. So that's, that's how I think about myself operating in these different contexts. Uh, I was early on, you know, my my degree is in electrical engineering, so I've always been drawn to technology. Uh, Early on, I became sort of a guru in customer-driven design, and that took me all over the world, helping Hitachi in Japan and Daewoo and Samsung in Korea and, you know, U.S. companies. And ultimately, I had no idea I could get into venture business without leaving Cincinnati. I thought I had to move to Silicon Valley. So, and I tried my hand at a startup. Before getting into venture, and my 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 strategy, by the way, for anybody who wants to get into venture, was uh, not to you know go Harvard Business School or join as an associate somewhere, which is a very very long path to partner. It was to start a company and develop relationships with investors, and maybe someday I'll find myself working at one of those firms. So I did start a company in the mid '90s, an internet related company that failed, and along the way I met investors and one of those investors asked me to join them. And so out of, out of failure comes success. You know, The ultimate long-term goal was still achieved. And so I joined, uh, I got in venture in 1998. So I got to enjoy a little little time during the bubble uh, and then after the bubble, yeah, which is also really important. I think so. I was there nine years at Blue Chip Venture Company. It was the first venture firm in Cincinnati, 600 million under management, more funds then i started share this uh, and this and that was precipitated after the sale of advertising.com to AOL where i was an early investor we were early investor i just saw that people myself included were getting more of our information from links that people shared with each other not from google searches so we created you know really with you know the first social media social sharing platform and button that you see all over the web reaches who knows? Probably a billion people a month, and uh, it was a very fast-growing company. Uh, that ultimately was headquartered out in Palo Alto, and I I uh, didn't want to move out there, so I moved from CEO to chairman. And that's when there was an initiative started in Cincinnati called Centrifuse, led by the all the CEOs in town, and kind of quarterbacked by Bob McDonald, who was the CEO of Procter Gamble, and they wanted to build a bigger venture ecosystem in the area, and they asked me if I'd. If I was interested in running a fund of funds and my, honestly, my initial, my initial response was that's, that sounds boring, like that's too far removed. But after thinking about it for a while, I thought, well, it's a good way for me to help out people in the region. You know, I I lived here, but I, most of where I worked was everywhere else. So I could help other entrepreneurs and I can kind of understand what separates the best from the rest in terms of venture firms. You know, as listeners probably know, kind of the inside workings of venture firms is, well, it's a lot less secretive today than it was, you know, 20 years ago, but uh, there's still a little bit of mystery there. And having been in a venture fund for nine years, I thought it would really be interesting to kind of go and compare notes. And I had a good network, uh, you know, firms I knew. So, you know, we did due diligence on probably 200, over 200 venture firms, invested in about 20 over a four year period of time when I was there. And that's when the next light bulb hit me, kind of like share this was the first one. Second one was was refinery. So in summary, yeah, tech entrepreneur operator, GP, general partner in a venture firm, and then LP in several different venture firms.
1: And Tim, I think that's a great segue into the, the founding of Refinery is, you know, you had an opportunity to see, you know, get inside baseball on in so many investment firms while you're at uh, Centrifuge. And then you came to this moment of founding Refinery. How did that shape your choice to found in Cincinnati as well as as your thesis?
0: I did, I was at a I was at a point after Share This... And I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that find themselves in a similar position. So I'll share, share it. Um, I was at a point where I didn't know really what I wanted to do next. I mean, people would often ask me, do you want to do a venture firm again or do you want to run a startup? And I felt guilty that I didn't have a definitive answer. But then I realized that's okay. Like, it's okay to have a season in your life when you're just exploring. If, if you have that luxury, not everybody has that luxury. Um, but if you do have that luxury or you find yourself stuck in that situation by necessity, either way, use that time to learn and explore, right? Don't just sit there waiting for something to fall on your lap, but like actively explore, but keep yourself open to what, what happens. So I, you know, I considered several startups and things like that, and but I proved out a few things, I think, during centrifuge that was kind of the first component of refinery, which is Outside of Silicon Valley, and I, I, the, the the key area, Silicon Valley or Boston, New York corridor, um, I found many people kind of uh, entrepreneurs might complain, "Oh, we don't have enough capital." And I was one of those people too, right? We oh, we wish we had more capital. Wish we had more capital. And I found that it really was not hard to raise money from the coast, provided you had growth metrics, right? And so I'd see many. Not uh, many startups in the Midwest, as well as even early stage funds or seed funds that didn't quite understand this. Now, initial funding usually is going to come locally. It's going to come from seed funds. It's going to come from people who know you, just like a, a NASCAR car, right? Everybody's related to people with the stickers on the car. <laughs> um, and because people are investing in, in the person and the dream. Right? And it's very hard to get somebody's attention, like on the coast the traditional venture firms, because they see a lot of those, right? They don't have to get on a plane to chase those. But if you can get to the point where you're growing and you're producing metrics, you can get people very interested. matter of fact, most coastal firms are looking for some differentiation, and they would love to find companies you know in the midwest that their competitors haven't already looked at and so I, I would kind of half jokingly a little bit of hyperbole, but it's it's not. T- not terribly far from the truth. I could call a, a a coastal firm and give them a profile of a startup that was growing and say, "Hey, it's growing five x. It was, you know five hundred k last year, going to going to two and a half million. And that investor will be on the plane the next day, and they still don't even know what the company does, right? Because we're you know we're all about pattern recognition, right? And and we're all about growth and you know it's like excel did you know facebook right series a it, it's not they didn't do it cuz they had a social media thesis right? nobody knew what the term social media was they just saw a, a ton of growth and said oh we got to be part of it right so so that's where i developed what i call the first law which is capital follows growth it's not a capital problem it's a growth problem and the sooner you understand that and the sooner you understand that you need to generate some growth metrics and i say growth it's not always revenue. It can be other forms of growth, right? Uh, but growth that's, you know, three, three, five X year over year uh, sort of growth uh, and do it in a capital efficient way, you'll have your pick of who invests in you. You really will, right? But unfortunately, too many companies who aren't getting that advice early on or at the seed stage end up raising more money than they should and higher too fast and they make the the most common mistake is premature scaling. They start trying to grow without really understanding the unit economics of their business or the proprietary differentiated strategies that will help them generate customer acquisition and ultimately market leadership.
1: And and Tim that's why I've I've always loved our conversations because you you come at things from an operator's lens of build a sustainable common sense business first, cause it to grow, and the capital will resolve itself.
0: So refinery was uh, framed up to focus on the specific stage I'm referring to here between seed and series A. And if you look at PitchBook data, for example, you find, and if you look at companies' progression, conversion from seed to series A across the country by region, the lowest region in the country is the Midwest. Uh, the Great Lakes area has just as many venture deals on a deal basis as the New England area on an annual basis, but only like a third or a fourth of the capital. So what does that tell you? That tells me that companies aren't getting to the B stage you know, where they're raising big, big rounds, right? So they get, they get kind of stuck. So our focus is on early scale. And I call it early scale. Some firms call it post-seed. Uh, but I really think of it functionally for what it is, which is you get the first million or so in revenue by hook or by crook, right? The founder is doing all the selling. You do whatever you can. Your operating history is very episodic, and now you raise money. Now you have to. Now people are expecting you to to scale, right? And and even the VCs who should know better are expecting that. But you're transitioning from founder-based selling to selling to an organization. You got to figure out your market segmentation. You have to do forecasting, which you've never really done before because you were just trying to get whatever revenue you could in the door. So there are all these challenges that you have, and they, and you have to solve them in a very short period of time, in less than 24 months, really, even in less than 12, before you're really ready to take on that growth. So that's what we specialize in stage-wise. But there was a second thing I left out in terms of the thing that was a real aha that caused me to create refinery. Um, and... It came as a result of interviewing hundreds of you know entrepreneurs in the region who would, let's say some of them had a half a million or a million in revenue and looking at doubling maybe. And I would, I'd start asking this question, which is, what would what would have to be true for you to do end the year next year at 10 million? And I just, they would like deer in the headlights, you know, deer in the headlights, they were just stuck. And it dawned on me after asking this question a number of times that they're stuck because they'd never seen it they didn't work in a company that did that they didn't know people that worked in a company that did that and i think you know too many people focus on just the founder status but anybody who is an employee in a company that went from 1 to 10 million has contributed right there's no room for people that aren't contributing everybody learned something and growth is growth whether it's 1 to 10 or 10 to 100 growth is growth it's kind of managed chaos and if you've been in it you kind of don't want to ever go back and in the mid and the on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, over a third of venture backed founders have previous hypergrowth experience, not as founders, but as VP of marketing or engineering or sales or, you know, what have you. And that compares to other parts of the country where it might be five percent. So you have entrepreneurs who are really smart, who have really good ideas, but they or and, and the people they're surrounded with. Have never, they don't know what's around the corner. They don't know what it takes to get to the 10 million and do it quickly. That was the aha. That was where I said, okay, we're going to focus on the talent and the leadership talent and attract people that maybe in the Bay Area. They're are boomerangs, right? They went to University of Michigan or Ohio State or Carnegie Mellon and they're out there and they've worked for eight or 10 years and now they want to do something on their own and they want to come back. And they and they appreciate the value of doing it in their hometown. Right? And they see it as a strategic advantage because you know, people always ask, hey, can you hire people in Cincinnati? And my answer is, can you hire people in Silicon Valley? Because when you start recruiting so against... Yeah, when you start recruiting against Google and Facebook and Salesforce, you'll find out. It, it is not a layup. I'd much rather hire around here and you know, hire some specialists if I need to. So refinery is all about the leadership and filling that leadership gap at and and this early state early scale stage
1: so insightful tim so insightful yeah i i totally agree and so before we go into a a case study i i would love to 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 your point How do you help those early founders? Because I see it even at the growth stage as well. Um, You know, I I, like you. I love investing in non-coastal regions Mm -hmm. because these the founders and these company leaders have have not only have pride in the business and product that they've built, but they have pride in doing it in, in their hometowns. There's that extra motivation for success. But how how do you help them? You know, I I call it structure. How do you help them cause that initial structure when they've never seen it before? To your point,
0: well, if they haven't seen it, then the next best thing is to surround them with advisors or other team members that have. So it doesn't have to be the CEO, right? It could be, Mm -hmm. it could be other executives on the team, or bring in investors and advisors that have that have gone through that. Right? Companies grow in in stages. You know, and uh, you can kind of recognize some of those patterns uh, from stage to stage. And some people are really good at certain stage. Very few are good all the way through every stage, right? Reid Hoffman and Ben Kenosha had the book, uh, The Alliance, right? And talked about, you should think of employees as, you know, being on a tour of duty, right? And tours of duty are usually three to five years, but you can actually accomplish something. And for some people, they accomplish something at that company, and then it's time for them to move on and get challenged somewhere else. And some have another tour duty in the same company, where they might go do an international stint or what have you. And I think that's all part of uh, all part of growth, right? I'm a big believer in growth. And if you're not growing, you're dying. And that goes for the employees. And it also goes in particular for the CEO. All right, if the CEO is not growing, the company's not growing. So even the CEO mm-hmm. is going to be challenged at whatever stage they're at. Yeah, maybe it's a $100 million company that needs to get to $500 million, or to a billion. And the strategies they use are going to be different than a company going from one to ten, but some of those growth dynamics are the same.
1: Yeah, Tim, brilliantly said. I couldn't agree more. So now I I, I cut you off before, but would love uh, to hear about one of one of your your portfolio sure. companies and and how they they manage through those stages of growth that you just talked about.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Astronomer, Astronomer.io. Better to be lucky than good. So, so it, the good news is that we got lucky early on, that the model kind of showing itself. But we have other examples as well. But um, this was so we started Fund One in 2017. My strategy was to surround myself with venture partners. Venture partner is an industry term that is purposely ambiguous right somebody can say they're a venture partner you don't know what that means you know uh either they're like a ceo in waiting or they're a domain expert or a potential board advisor or a potential you know, partner in the fund right you just and and so i fully take advantage of that so we have about eight venture partners but the first one i brought on was a, a friend joe otto who he tried to sell me software when i was doing share this he tra- he was he was senior vp of sales at greenplum which was business intelligence software and we didn't buy it because we were one of the earliest companies that was building everything in the AWS cloud. So we we had to go a different direction. But Joe was at you know uh, Sun Microsystems and Cisco and Greenplum. And then he was CEO of Alpine Data Systems. Uh, he grew Greenplum from zero to 200 million in revenue. And he was here wow. in Cincinnati. And I'm like, okay, this guy's got the growth profile. He's got to be associated with what we're doing. And... A couple months in, he came to me and he said, hey, do you know the company Astronomer that is not only local, but was literally right in the same building next to their offices next to me. And uh, the founder was Rye Walker. And I knew Rye since before he started Astronomer through the centrifuge work. And I had, you know, he'd come to me for advice off and on while he was building Astronomer, which started out as sort of a, a, a big data something. I don't think they knew exactly what they wanted to do, but they wanted to do stuff with data. Okay. Fair enough. But they were, you know, had customers, they were trying to do different things and I'd keep, you know, keep tabs every once in a while. Well, Joe comes to me and Joe didn't know that I knew them. He says, Hey, what do you know about astronomer? I told him and they had at this point had been funded to the tune of about $5 million, had a small amount of recurring revenue and not a lot of runway. So, I, so of course, I'm like, yes, I know Astronomer. I, I like those guys a lot, but I'm not sure that they've kind of unlocked the key yet. And um, Joe said, well, I met with Rye and I looked into what they're doing. They've aligned themselves with Apache Airflow, which is a big open source project that came out of Airbnb. And he said, I checked around my folks, my friends in Silicon Valley and others, and and, and this Airflow thing's really taken off. It's, it's, it's about managing data pipelines and kind of introducing know kind of a broader concept of infrastructure as code, if you will. So it was right up Joe's alley. And I said, well, that's great. I said, but I don't, I don't think they have, you know, the team there that understands how to scale this. And said, well, Ryan, I have been talking. I think he might be interested in me joining a CEO. And I was like, wow, that that's cool. He's like, so should refinery invest? And I said, like, well, I'm not so sure. I, I think you need to have the right investors going to do this, people that know open source and whatnot. And so he said, what do you think about Sierra Ventures? I was like, I love Sierra. Tim Galeri at Sierra. So we put together a, a new round. Had to kind of clean things up. New round with Sierra and Bain and Refinery. And Joe went in as CEO. And this is 2019. Fast forward May. I believe it was May of 2020. The company is... Up a bunch revenue-wise, and we closed a fourteen million dollars Series A round led by Ethan Petrasky at Venrock. A few months later, day before Thanksgiving, signed a term sheet with Sutter Hill for a forty million dollars Series B round, and then earlier this year, closed a eighty million dollars C round led by Insight. Wow! And the numbers are, you know, continue to follow the way you'd expect them to follow. In a case like this. So it's, um, our investments up quite a bit, uh, prospects for the company are quite good. Um, it's likely to be a fund returner multi, multiple times over. Um, hopefully knock on wood, um, the market's just kind of very hot and crazy right now, but at the end of the day, they're still providing a lot of value. They have have big customers. It's all part of this move to, you know, digitally transform the enterprise. Right. So, it's not going away, whether things are as frothy, you know, tomorrow as they are today remains to be seen, but they're providing real value. Joe brought onto the team, other members of the team that he had worked with in the past, who've also gone through that kind of hypergrowth curve. So they know what to expect. They know what things should look like. And that's a huge difference maker for them. So the whole story is, you know, the company started with a with a, a founder who had a very good intuition about the market and about software development and infrastructure. He knew just intuitively, but he hadn't grown up in it or around it around successful companies in that space. He landed on a good idea in terms of associating with Apache Airflow. And then Joe and the, and the rest of the team brought the kind of experience of how to navigate the market. And it just unlocked all that potential. I say unlocked because I think it was there. You know, it, it just, yeah. you, needed the, you needed the right ingredients. You needed the right hypergrowth leader. You needed the right investors who appreciated it and understood it. Like I said, we see that happening. In a number of our companies that more often than not, once we do a, if we lead or co-lead a, a three to $5 million round, sometimes it's a seed plus round, they'll call it. We know we're doing our job when we get a $15 million series A within 12 months after that round. If that happens, you know, you know, things are working and luckily it's happened a number of times now. So, you know, we're focused on that specific stage of building that engine, you know, to get you from point A to B, which is a million to 10
1: million. And and I want to come back to to fundraising because I think you have a, a lot of great guidance in that regard, Tim, but... Before we do, uh, one thing that clearly astronomer figured out very early was product market fit. And you talk a lot about eating our own dog food as investors and finding our own product market fit. So would love to hear from you why, what is, what is refineries product market fit and how do you talk to entrepreneurs about why they should take money from refinery instead of the, the litany of other options?
0: Yeah, great question. It's, um, now, there are a lot of emerging managers out there, especially in a frothy market, right? Everybody wants to try their hand at venture capital. And I'm still old-fashioned, believe it takes 10 years to learn how to do this. You, you basically end up losing quite a bit of money and, and learning painful lessons along the way. So the core of refinery is really focused on that hyper-growth leader. It's really solving for that problem. And that's why we have the name refinery. It's about, you know, how. You know you're transformed we're we're transformed through adversity the fire of adversity right um and refining fire is a different kind of fire it's not incinerator fire you know which which just completely annihilates things it's not forest fire right which is indiscriminate it's a refiner's fire and a refiner's fire gets rid of all the impurities to kind of reveal the the, the pure gold that's underneath and as as a leader you become a leader by overcoming adversity right and i and I find that exceptional leaders thrive in that right it's it's the classic hey coach give me the ball like you know we're down i we got to figure this out we're going to win right that's that's who we're focused on that's what we're focused on that's why the name refinery and then the astronaut people ask about the astronaut it's so i'm sitting here and i'm thinking okay how how do i attract those entrepreneurs the people that think of themselves as tech pioneers because historically you think i'm a tech pioneer I need to move to Silicon Valley. Right. So how, how do I attract those folks and not necessarily compete with Silicon Valley? And, you know, it dawned on me through the help again with one of our friends and advisors. um, Maybe it didn't dawn on me. She hit me over the head and, and helped me realize that it was there all along was that the ultimate pioneers were the astronauts. And the astronauts went to places like Purdue university and lived in Cincinnati like Neil Armstrong did. Yeah. But it's, I think it's true, and Neil typified that kind of leader, right he was he was fearless, but not a bravado, fearless. He was fearless by failing at stuff thousands of times, so when it when he was confronted with a hard situation, he knew exactly how to deal with it in a cool headed way he was he experimented, he was a test pilot first and foremost, right He was always testing and tinkering, and you know it, it it's not it's not this. Bold, brave, courageous kind of um, myth that you see. It's somebody who's very thoughtful, who's an engineer, who ended up doing one of the most incredible things in human history. You know, strapped himself to a rocket and going to the moon. <laughs> and um, but it was through thought and preparation, experimentation. You know, all those things, which I think are great because when you're building a company, that's what you're doing, right? You're you're constantly experimenting and probing and trying to figure out first of all what do customers want what's the problem customers have and how can we solve it how can we solve it at scale right and and you're never done with that you know jeff bezos typified that right with the the whole day one philosophy the moment you think you're done doing that you're done as he said you know as long as customers are dissatisfied with something they'll be in business right there's always something you can help fix so that's the ethos and the the vision for refinery and as you mentioned you know, even venture funds have to differentiate themselves. So that's the core component of it. The second core component is this early scale stage, very specific stage. Where like, This is where we think we can be helpful and where we think we can win over the entrepreneurs and the founders to uh, convince them or to attract them because they know that we can help them through that stage of growth. And if we do our job right, other great high quality investors show up and we, we don't have much to do. One of, our, one of our LPs asked me that question. He said, uh, hey, how much time do you spend helping your companies fundraise? And I kind of was taken back a little bit. Like, huh, let me think about that. And his, his assumption was it was like 90% of my time. And I said, it's probably 5% of my time. He's like, what do you, what do you mean? And more of my time spent helping them figure out the growth. And if we figure out the growth, their phone starts ringing off the hook. You know, investors, exactly. aren't, investors aren't dumb, right? I mean, we're all looking for good growth companies. Yeah, all of us at, at every one of these stages. And so we get really good at trying to find those companies. And if you produce the growth, people will find, find out who you are, right? And so um, it's kind of back to a first principles kind of uh, way of thinking. If we do our job right, then we get the company well-positioned to be a market leader in whatever space they've chosen to be in. And then not settle in terms of finding investor partners who can help them,' they're the right partners, then it just it, it's it gets easier. It's never easy, right? And I don't want to make it sound mm-hmm. like it's easy. all of this is is incredibly hard, uh, but it helps when you've got that market pool and you've positioned yourself well and you're growing and it's more of a problem solving sort of uh, attitude that you can have in terms of how do we how do we remove friction from the system and and um, continue to keep ourselves in a position of being a market leader.
1: And and to that end one of the uh, one of the exciting places that you're investing is uh, is Canada. Um, you've had some success there as well. Uh, Talk, talk to us about your, 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 uh, investing efforts there, your, your, uh, the one portfolio company that I'm aware of and what, what might be same or, or different about the Canadian markets versus, um, you know, where the rest of us are investing.
0: Sure. Well, as you know, just like most great ideas it ha- happened by accident. So <laughs> Teal book is in Toronto, T E A L B O O K. I, uh, Founded and, and CEO is um, Stephanie LaPierre. But actually I found out about it through their senior VP of strategy and revenue, Matt palak who's in Cincinnati. And uh, we happened to be on a flight together. I didn't know who he was. He knew who I was and uh, had just sold, was part of a company was acquired and started telling me about the Teal Book and that's how it started. So I can't claim credit for it being part of some master Sourcing strategy, Uh, and TL Books doing extremely well. You know, when we first met, they it's a supply chain data company. Their market positioning was not well established, so it was kind of confusing. But there was something there, so we kept kind of twiddling on it. And it's one of my you know great examples of getting positioning right makes a world of difference. And one of the books that I recommend often. And I interviewed here a friend, uh, Kevin Maney, uh, has a book called Play Bigger about how to create category, category kings. It's all about market Absolutely. positioning. And at the end of the day, investing and venture investing in particular is about finding the market leaders, not not the number two or number three. You're trying to find the market leader, the one that's going to be the market leader. And every CEO I give that book to just goes nuts and they they start planning their life around it. You know, they they find it so <laughs> helpful. And um, that happened with Tealbook. But I, you know, one of the questions I asked them, a common kind of maybe cliche question is, which, what kinda, which company out there would you aspire to be like? So we were struggling to figure out the strategy. There were a lot of elements and it was confusing. And I wasn't sure, but I thought they were onto something, but it's hard to get a handle on. And I came back a week later and they said, you know, are you familiar with Zoom Info? So not Zoom, the, the conferencing company, but Zoom Info, which went public last year. At the time, it hadn't gone public. It was a merger between ZoomInfo and Discover.org, and it was backed by Carlyle. I kind of knew about it, but I didn't really know what they were. And they said, well, it's, it's basically customer, customer data, contact info. And what's happened is ZoomInfo's kind of decoupled data about contacts and customers from the application, from the CRM applications, from Salesforce, Sugar, CIM, et cetera. So a teal book, as Zoom Info is to CRM, we are to supply chain. Bingo, done it. Game over. Yes, that's it. <laughs> makes a hundred. It makes total sense. There's a decoupling of the day because the problem with all these applications is the teal book calls you know the big fat lie. Yeah, you know, every every application vendor goes into enterprise selling their application and it's going to fix all these problems, but it never fixed the data problem. And it doesn't matter how good your doesn't matter how good your application is if your data doesn't work. So you know, simple analogy is your phone, right? Your phone may have a contact app, but if you have bad data in for your contacts and wrong phone numbers, it doesn't do you any good. And so there's this like called decoupling that's happened uh, where companies are solving the data problem primarily, and they're not necessarily selling the application and the workflow and whatnot. So that's what Tealbook does. And, and the moment they settled on that, everything made sense and got easier. Fundraising, customers, uh, employees, it just resonated. So usually these things are actually pretty simple, but, but not always obvious at first. They're obvious afterwards. They're like the Blacks, you know, the Nassim Taleb Black Swans, right? Once you say it, you go, oh, okay, makes sense. So I love helping the companies focus on the positioning. Ideally, they would have that positioning nailed already when we meet them, but sometimes they don't. But there's enough there that it's worth trying to figure it out. So the people are great in Canada. We, we've partnered with several of the firms up there, but most notably Stand Up Ventures, Michelle McBain. I've had her on Fast Frontiers. She's focused on women-led companies named Stand Up after the girl standing up on Wall Street. She's really cool. So she also introduced us to another woman-led company in Vancouver, Canada, named Storytap, Bernadette Butler. Mm-hmm. And Storytap is basically taking consumer product reviews but giving a pl- created a platform to do those via video, like TikTok videos, in essence, versus text, so much more emotive. Uh, they figured out how to do it and how to scale it. Uh, really cool company. A Great o- couple entrepreneurs, and um, so Michelle's helped us navigate Canada. You know, much, you know, a lot of similarities to the Midwest. It, you know, has something to prove. Have a ton of great talent, you know, Toronto in particular, a ton of great tech talent, great tax credits for their R and D work, um, you know, very similar, just kind of culturally and attitudinally. And, uh, so, so we love it. Thanks for listening to fast frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you the rest of our conversation, part two of our Man Behind the Mic episode with Joe Kaiser of Mercado Partners. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is Casted.